0: Part of that prayer that we read of Solomon says the following Will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I built? That, of course, is the basic problem of building a temple, and Solomon was well aware of it. As we read, Paul describes the church in Ephesians 2 as a building in which God dwells, in other words, a temple. As you're probably aware the temple was very important in Jewish worship and so it's natural that Jesus himself as well as Paul and John in the passages we read and in others use temple imagery in their teaching. Now in order to get our heads around this, when I started it I thought this was maybe a bit more complicated than I'd realised. Um, so in order to, as it were, get our heads around it I'd like to... Um, First of all, think a bit about the Old Testament temple and the concept of a temple generally. Um, And then we can get some handle perhaps on what Paul and John mean in these temple passages and in particular how they would apply to us. So this is the way I want to handle it. First of all, I want to ask uh, well, three questions, although the first one is a kind of compound question. The first thing is what is a temple and why would you particularly want to build one? The second is, what is the important design brief for a temple? What is it that you know, if you're designing a temple, what's the main thing you have to think about? And the third thing is, what are you going to build it out of? Because that's the other important thing you have to think about, of course, if you're building any building, you've got to get the right construction materials, otherwise it ain't going to stay up. So we'll think about those three questions. And then, by way of application, uh, I called it the church, a new concept in temple design. I hope it doesn't sound too flippant, but I thought it it is what it is. The church is a new concept in temple design. And uh, so we'll look at that. And then, actually, I haven't put it on the slide here, but just to finish, we'll look at the Bible's last word on temples. Because this isn't quite the last word on temples, actually. But we'll look at that just to finish. So, first of all, what is a temple? well that's easy enough to uh, answer in one sense a temple is a house for a god or a goddess in the old testament there are actually two hebrew words that are translated temple one of them is baith which is simply the ordinary everyday word for a house it's the word you use to describe your own house And in fact, if you look at some of the older translations, like the authorised version, they just translate it as house, they don't call it a temple at all. They just call it a house of the Lord, or a house of Baal, or whatever. The other words that's used sometimes is kāl, which appears to have something of the meaning of a slightly grander house with a courtyard, or perhaps a palace, it's interesting that this is the word that's used in um, 1 Samuel in Samuel's early days when, of course, it, was, um, it talks about the temple in translation, but, of course, the actual temple hadn't been built yet. There was a house in Shiloh, which may well have just been Eli's own house. We, we don't know, but that's where um, Samuel spent his early years. And uh, that is described as there as cow. Mostly in the historical books, the, uh, the word Baith is used with the Kekau just referring perhaps to the courtyard of the temple or something like that. But in the later prophets, they tend to talk about Kekau. So the, the words are pretty well interchangeable. And they both basically mean a house. And the context tells you whether you're talking about a house or the king's palace or whether you're talking about a, an actual temple. Temple is a house for a god or goddess but there of course is the problem gods and goddesses don't naturally live in houses certainly not those built by humans so why do you build a temple well it's not really so much for the god's benefit is it it's for your own you build a temple because you want to ensure the presence of your god constrain if you like your goddess to a time and place so how are you going to do that you saw we're all building a building but how do you assure that your god or goddess takes up residence there well one popular method it was popular in the ancient world and it's some places it's still popular today is to have an image of the god an idol in other words now actually an idol does offer certain advantages as um, Isaiah and Jeremiah both point out we didn't look it up but they both point out when talking about idols an idol has the advantage you can nail it down in some ways you're you're sort of making sure that your God stays put now of course in theory there's a distinction between the God himself and the idol isn't there I mean I suppose that the Priests of Diana in Ephesus didn't really believe that, you know, that Diana was restricted to their temple. But in practice, the point is pretty well moot. Basically, where your idol is, there your God is. And so you ensure that your God stays within the uh, temple, within the city, where you want him to be. And um, you know, he's the God of your land, perhaps, and you, you want to make sure he stays there. And you can, if you have an idol... Of course, sometimes you might want your God somewhere else, but that's okay too. Perhaps it's a national emergency and you're going to fight a war. So what do you do? Well, you can either pull the nails out and take your God with you, or if that's not practicable, you can just build a small replica and you can um, perhaps dedicate it in the temple and you can take that with you and then you know that your God is going with you to war. I think it's a bit like the way I can log this iPad into my uh, server at home and can uh, can get my music if I want to. uh, You have a sort of portable God. An idol is a portable packaged God. The ultimate inconvenience, religion, actually. And, of course, a temple gives you a convenient place to to keep him. The idol there ensures the presence of the God. But of course, what Isaiah and Jeremiah were really going on about, they were, they were making fun of the idea, of course. You can't nail a God down. It just doesn't make sense. And um, when Solomon built his temple, that idle option was not open to him. Of course, forming an image of the Lord was expressly forbidden in the Ten Commandments by Moses. And why was that? Well, of course, for precisely that reason. God did not want to imply that you know, he is constrained by some image or idol uh, because you know, as I say though in theory you know there's a distinction between a, an idol and the God himself in, in practice the, the line soon gets blurred and the idol becomes the God and so Moses has specifically forbidden that And why was it the reason well the reason that the living god could not be constrained by a statue or confined to a could not be constrained by a statue or confined to a building Solomon as we saw understands this issue very well as he tells us in um, that prayer that verse I quoted at the beginning 1 kings 8:27 will god really dwell on earth the heavens even the highest heaven cannot contain you how much less this temple I've built. And you will notice the other bits of the prayer he he actually read, he's quite careful. He says, when people pray towards this temple, Lord, answer from heaven. And um, the only way God at all could be said to dwell in a building was if he graciously consented to do so. And that, of course, is what the prayer that we read is about. Solomon is asking God to do just that, He's, um, God had promised that he would, Solomon would build a building where he would put his name, and the name there does, of course, signify the presence of God. And that's exactly what Solomon is praying. He's asking God to do just that. And God did indeed consent to do just that, but as I say, only up to a point. Solomon was well aware that, really, of course, God was in heaven, and in another sense, of course, God is everywhere. And um, that when God answers, He doesn't answer from the holy of holies, He answers from heaven. But still, that's the basic solution. You, you build a God uh, build an idol for the presence of your God, so you can have your sorry, you build a temple for the presence of your God, and to ensure the presence of your God, you can either build an idol or you can appeal to the grace of your God as Solomon does and say will you consent to be present with us in this place so that's what a temple is and that's why you build one but why is it when you're designing a temple what is it you need to think about if you're designing any building form follows function doesn't it indeed if you're designing anything form follows function we think about the flow of the building. Do you like that program, Homes Under the Hammer? I like to watch that sometimes. And when they go and look at the house, the presenter will go into the house and say, yeah, this house doesn't work for me, or, or it does. He said, but if you move that wall, then it would be all so much better. The house would work, it would flow. A house has to work. A house has to have some intention So the question is, do the spaces and do the walls that define the spaces actually enhance the activity that takes place there, in which case the the house will work, the house will flow, as we say, or if it doesn't, then the house doesn't work, the building doesn't work and we need to do something about it and, and change it. So how does that apply to building a temple? But well, if we think about the purpose of a temple, we can see how that applies. Because the purpose of a temple is to make your God accessible, but not too accessible. <laughs> if you visit a, an old ancient palace, like, say, the one at Hampton Court, you find that it's designed as a series of rooms. So the outer room, pretty much anyone can get into. But as you move through the building, uh, access is more and more restricted. So to get into the next room, you have to be a nobleman and to get in the room after that, perhaps you have to be one of the Privy Council or something like that. And actually get to the presence of the king, you either have to be a very important person yourself or you have to be there on very important business. And so that's the way a palace is often designed. And um, that's actually the way the temple in Jerusalem was designed pretty much as well. There's a a plan of it there. And as you can see, it's made up of a, a series of rooms with an entrance at one end. And as you go through the rooms, you get sort of into holier and holier places. The outer courts around the building itself, pretty much anybody was allowed in. It was described as a court for the Gentiles. To get in the building itself, though, you had to be Jewish. And to get a bit further in, you had to be a Levite or a priest. And to get right into the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, as it was called, the holiest place, which was the place where God's presence was focused, you had to be the high priest. And you were only allowed even then to do it once a year on the Day of Atonement. So it's very much the same principle. You want access to God, but there must be some separation as well. Now, why is this? Why do we design it that way? And I think it's actually twofold. If we think again of a palace, then this design does two things. For one thing, it protects the king from having too much contact with the unholy masses isn't it the proletariat as it were but also actually it protects the said mass, unholy masses actually from the wrath of the king as well <laughs> a certain separation is the thing we want access but not too much access total access will be destructive Because God would be provoked to anger by the sin of the people and the people would find themselves destroyed, burnt up by the holiness of God. So this elaborate temple was set up to provide access to God but only under very controlled conditions as it were when it would not either provoke God to anger or submit the people to destruction. The only problem, though, was that it never really quite worked. In uh, Zechariah the prophet has a, has a vision of the high priest, who was called, at that time was called Joshua, who was about to enter the holy place. And, of course, the high priest would have gone into the holy place wearing special robes and with a headdress that said Holy to the Lord across the top and with all sorts of symbolic garments on. We saw a photograph this morning of the garments that some Catholics wear, doesn't it? But really, in a sense, the, the high priest would have had far more, even than that. All sorts of symbolic garments he had to wear. But Zechariah has a vision of Joshua, the high priest, as he's about to enter the holy place, and he realizes that Joshua's not dressed for the occasion. In fact, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes. And Satan standing there and said, You can't go in there like dressed like that and he's quite right and of course the filthy clothes represent not that he was really in filthy clothes of course this is a vision and the filthy clothes of course represent the sins of the people and indeed the sins of Joshua himself even the amount of separation and sort of holy things that were attached to the temple worship were not really enough they never quite worked because even Joshua even the high priest even these special clothes that he would wear were really not enough to making him acceptable to, to God so access to that way was quite problematic and as Solomon had understood and mentioned in his prayer God would sometimes remove his presence from the temple and when that happened it was bad news all round because the protection of the people would be taken away the most holy place contained the ark of the covenant and was surmounted by carvings of two cherubim and so that was where as it were the presence of God was, the glory of God was regarded as being focused that was where the Shekinah glory was when the temple was dedicated and so on and were God to leave that place that mercy seat as it was called Trouble was inevitable. And one example of this is in a, found in a vision of Ezekiel. Oh, I've missed it. No, I haven't, sorry. Um, I've got my numbering wrong, that's what the trouble is. Sorry, I've got my slide numbering wrong, but I think I can sort it out. But in a vision of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 9, 3 to 6... Um, You can look at it if you like, but I'll read it out. It's not too long. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. I haven't got a pointer, but he moves from the Holy of Holies out to the vestibule and and the steps up there. And the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side and said to him, "'Go throughout the city of Jerusalem "'and put a mark on the foreheads of those "'who grieve and lament "'over all the detestable things that are done in it. "'As I listened, he said to the others, "'Follow him through the city and kill "'without showing pity or compassion. "'Slaughter old men, young men and maidens, "'women and children, "'but do not touch anyone who has the mark. "'Begin at my sanctuary.' "'So they began with the elders "'who were in front of the temple.' Um, the context was that the elders had been conducting some idolatrous worship in front of the temple and uh, in this vision Ezekiel says that is not good news at all the Lord himself will come and avenge it and when the Lord leaves the mercy seat and comes out as it were among the city that's very bad news indeed it's going to cause all sorts of trouble for the people And later on, actually, Ezekiel describes the Lord leaving Jerusalem altogether and coming over towards where the people are in Babylon. And then later, still, there's a vision of the glory of the Lord returning to Jerusalem. So when God leaves the temple, that is bad news. But this was a problem that never really went away while there was a temple in Jerusalem, it was always a problem how could access to God be provided but just we'll come back to that in a minute minute. but before we look at that I just want to address the, the last question there what do you make a temple out of if you're going to build a temple what do you use and you've got two basic considerations in mind first of all you want it to last a long time presumably God is immortal so as far as practicable you want the house to last as long as, as long as it can, as long as you can make it. So what do you do? Well you build don't you from dressed stone, you don't use timber at all or if you do use timber, if you do use wood, you use something, a wood that's very long lasting, not something that is not, that is rock resistant, and Solomon in fact use cedar. In verse 36 of 1 Kings 6, it says that Solomon built the inner courtyard of three courses of dressed stone and one course of trimmed cedar beams. The building was designed to last. It wasn't a temporary structure by any means. The tabernacle, of course, had been a temporary structure. It was a building that was designed to be portable. But the temple was designed to last and you use metals and if you use metals you're going to use metals that won't rust, metals that will resist corrosion so you use silver and gold and of course while you're building it you build carefully, you employ the best craftsmen and builders you can get because you want it to be built properly and so you want to build the building so that it will last but of course you also want to Build the building for beauty. You don't want to give the impression that your God is ugly, do you? I'm sure the people who built the uh, temple in, to Diana, who was a goddess of love, I think, um, wanted to make the building beautiful because they certainly didn't want to imply their goddess was ugly. And certainly Solomon didn't want to imply that his God, the Lord, was ugly. And so he built for beauty. Now, fortunately, in fact, the materials that give long life also lend themselves to attractive construction. So it's possible, in many ways, to meet both those criteria. Gold and silver, not only long-lasting, but they're beautiful too. And a building built from stone often looks better than buildings built from other construction materials, especially if it's, if it's well built and carved by a craftsman and an expert. A stonemason can make a stone building look really beautiful. Much more difficult to do that in brick, or in many ways even in wood. You can carve wood, but it doesn't last. So what do you build a temple of? Well, the materials you use to construct your temple are supposed to reflect and display the attitudes of the god that it houses, aren't they, that's always the point of it. So that's how you build a temple. You build it to ensure the presence of your God, you build it to provide the right kind of access, a controlled access, so that neither the, the God is not offended and the people are not destroyed, and you build it so that it's both durable and beautiful. So those are the things you think about if you're setting out to build a temple. I asked David if he'd ever built a temple and he said designed a temple and he said not although he has designed a church extension but not perhaps quite the same thing but that's what you'd need to think about if you were building a temple but the only problem was that it never really worked Solomon's temple lasted several hundred years actually but was destroyed in the Babylonian invasion when the people returned from exile Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple we don't know how long it took we do know he had some problems because the temple mount was in a mess and it was too much digging out required and God had to say not by might nor by power but by my spirit and then they started leveling the temple mount It was a fairly modest thing apparently from my all accounts compared to the Temple of Solomon but it did survive several wars and in fact it even survived including the conquest by the Romans when the Roman general was surprised he went into the actually into the holy place in the Temple and was surprised to discover that there was no image there in fact there was probably nothing there at all because it's likely that the Ark of the Covenant had been lost during the exile there's no reference to it after the return from exile so Zerubbabel's temple actually did quite well for longevity and say survived into Roman times but that wasn't actually the temple that Jesus knew in 19 BC Herod the Great wanting to make himself popular he was kind of only sort of half Jewish really and he wanted to make himself popular with the Jews, and so he commenced a complete reconstruction of the temple. They completely flattened what was left as a rubbables temple and the temple mound, and started all over again. They had to make special arrangements like we did when we were having work done on the the, um, building. We had to make special arrangements to meet somewhere else and carry out the sacrifices somewhere else, and they organised all that stuff, and... um, Herod started building the temple well not, not personally of course but he uh, funded it and organised it and set it happening in 19 BC so effectively although we talk about second temple Judaism this was really the third temple in fact but it was not to prove third time lucky Herod's temple was the one Jesus knew and it, in some ways it was the grandest of the three but it will be also be the least successful of the three because of the old problem. The outer court of the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for the Gentiles or the Gentiles could come and seek the Lord. But as we read in John 2, it has found another purpose. So Jesus went into the temple in John 2, 14 to 16, and we read this. In the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? The affairs of this world, the trading of this world, they didn't need to trade in animals for the sacrifices, of course, but the house of God was becoming a cattle market. And so the place where the Gentiles were supposed to pray it wasn't available for them. This basic problem of integrating the sacred and the profane had still not been addressed. And Jesus has several discussions, actually, with the Pharisees over the temple, and at one point they remark that it had been 46 years in the building. Well, we know it was started in A.D. 19. So that makes the date of this conversation AD 27. Um, if you think that doesn't quite add up, we, it's now thought that Jesus was actually born, not at A BC or AD 0, but actually about BC 6 to BC 4. So as has usually been held, Jesus was around 30 years, 30, 31 years old at this time. So this conversation must have taken place in AD 27. And in fact, Herod's temple wasn't even complete at that time. 46 years on, it still hadn't been finished. Solomon, I say, I think managed to finish his in seven years, but this was still under construction, 46 years after it had been started. But Jesus was to go on to predict that this temple, Herod's temple, was not going to last long. He made several predictions of the destruction of the temple in one way or another. And it was indeed destroyed by the Romans in .AD. 70. So in, though in some ways Herod's temple was the biggest and best temple, it was the least successful. From foundation to destruction was 90 years, Nine, only 90 years. The other two temples had both lasted much longer than that. And the temple experiment had failed. The basic contradiction that Solomon had understood, that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah and the other prophets had pointed out, could not be resolved. You cannot really make a God live on earth in a building. However much separation you put between the God and the people, it's not enough. You want access to God, but access to God in a sense is not possible through such a, a mechanism. So that had three goes at it, but the temple experiment ultimately failed. But the reason for the temple was still there. The need for the temple was, was still there. There still needed to be... A house where mankind could meet with God. We still needed such a thing. So what was the solution? What was needed was some... Sorry, that's the wrong slide. What was needed was some new thinking. And what the new thinking was is this. Why not build a house out of people? Now hang on, that doesn't sound like a very brilliant idea, does it? I mean, humans are not very long-lived. And um, spiritually, at least, they're not very beautiful. Most of us are not beautiful at all, and even if some of us are more beautiful physically, we're all pretty ugly spiritually. And if a lot of people are involved, well, surely that makes the whole problem worse. How could the separation between God God and the profane, the world outside, be maintained. But it turned out these problems could be addressed, and Jesus himself led the way. So as part of that discussion in John 2, Jesus says the following, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days the Jews replied it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days but the temple he had spoken of was his body and after he was raised from the dead his disciples recalled what he had said and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken Jesus was speaking here of his own body and the presence of God in in him but that wasn't the total solution because Jesus had to leave the earth, he was going to leave the earth and go to the Father in heaven. So the idea was expanded to include the, his disciples. The people of God, the, the church of Jesus, who was the firstborn from the dead, would form the temple. And in that idea of resurrection was. And the death of the resurrection of Jesus was the solution to the problems of building a temple. The resurrection would solve the issue of permanence, for instance. In fact, humans can be made more durable than, than mere granite. And that's what John says in that passage of Revelation we read, isn't it? To him who overcomes, I will make a pillow in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. A pillar in a real temple is going to fall down eventually and somebody will go and look at the ruins. But in the temple built by God, the pillar is there forever. And who is the pillar? Well, it is the one who Jesus said who overcomes, in other words, the the, uh, disciple who overcomes the world. And it will have all the right accreditation. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I will also write on him my new name. So he wouldn't have the problem that the priests of old had, that they they, they needed all this special stuff, and they needed the name holy to the Lord on their forehead. But because it wasn't right, they weren't really holy to the Lord, the pillar in the temple will have it stamped on, written into the stone, as it were. So this temple would be constructed out of people. The church of God, the disciples of Jesus, would be the temple. But still, these principles of temple construction have still got to apply, haven't they? Basically, there must be a resident God for a a temple to be a temple and not just a house or a synagogue or something. There has to be a God in residence. And so that's why Paul tells us this in Ephesians two nineteen to 22, that passage we read. You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household. And you're part of the building. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And does God take residence there? Yes. In him you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. God builds the temple of this church, of the church, as a place to live, a place to be on earth, present on earth, and where people, as it were, can come and meet him. And so God lives by his spirit in this temple, signifying the presence of Jesus. Jesus is there as the chief cornerstone. This is a much better solution than confining God to the most holy place. Because here, God is present in the whole building. In the suffusing, as it were, the very walls, the stones from which the building is built. The whole temple is holy, not just the holy place. Every brick and every component, every carving and pillar displays the presence of the Holy One. Well, okay, but hang on a minute. What about this business of the separation between what is holy and what is not? How's that going to work then, if the whole temple is holy? If God is present in the whole of the temple... How's that going to work? Well, Paul has a simple solution to that problem, at least one that's simple in principle, perhaps more difficult to do in practice. The unholy must simply be driven out. And so this wasn't a passage we read, read, but in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 16, Paul writes this, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? You can't have two gods resident in the temple because they'll be in competition, as it were. Certainly not. You can't have the Lord and an idol present in the temple. That won't work at all. And so the idol has to be driven out. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And as you might expect, he's quoting there from several Old Testament passages, actually, from Leviticus, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. You can build a multi-faith chapel, if you like, like there's one at Gatwick Airport, but you can't build a temple which admits other gods besides the Lord, because the Lord is a jealous God, he tells us, who won't give his glory to another so if idols are infiltrating the temple as they were in Ezekiel's time then they must be driven out because if they're not then the Lord himself will leave and as we've seen that spells trouble for everybody so we cannot allow temples we must allow idols in the temple of the Lord in in the church and of course I think Paul is talking not so much about actual idols in this case I mean we don't Some churches have statues in them and people argue about whether they're idols or not. But um, I don't think that's primarily actually what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the things that hold the first place in our heart, the things that we worship. And we need to drive those out from amongst us. Well, as I say, I think... Solomon's temple took seven years to build. Herod, we don't know how long Zerubbabel took. Herod took at least 46 years, at least the temple did. He was well dead by that time, of course. But this temple is still under construction. 2,000 years later, it's still not finished. Why do I say that? Well, because... Paul tells us that, doesn't he, in that passage we read from 1 Corinthians. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid the foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. It's no good going doing your own thing and saying, I'm going to build over here. You've got to build on the foundation that's there. And that foundation is Jesus. And then Paul talks about the materials, doesn't he? If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. The implication being that presumably it won't make it into the final building, as it were. But it does say he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. So what does Paul say here? He says that you are both the builders and the material that it's built from. I suppose probably as the builders he's talking particularly about church leaders and preachers and so on, but I don't think it's restricted to that. I think he's actually saying that each of us is involved in building the temple because each of us wants our work to endure, wants our work, as it were, to be part of that final temple. So we are both the builders and the material, and the construction is still going on, it's not finished yet. But nonetheless, God has already taken up residence in his temple. In one sense, it doesn't have to be finished, because, as as I've said, God is everywhere in this temple. And Peter has a similar idea, 1 Peter 2 verse 5, he says the following... So I didn't put this one on the slide, but it's 1 Peter 2, verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter mixes here the, the house itself and the priesthood, the people who offer the sacrifices, but he says, you are living stones, you are being built into the temple, the spiritual house where business with God will be done. So what does that mean for us? It means, doesn't it, that we need to make sure that our lives are suitable components for the temple. They need to be fireproof, as Paul puts it. They need to be holy so that they will not be burnt up by the fire of the Lord's anger. So what is the advice that Paul gives to temple builders? They should build carefully, should build to last and they should build beautifully. Now I could stop there but I thought it's worth reminding ourselves this isn't quite actually the Bible's last word on temples. The Bible's last word on temples we actually find in Revelation in chapter 21. Again I can't read the whole thing, I haven't got time. But I'll read Revelation 21, 2 to 7. And it might not be immediately obvious to you that this is about the temple, but in fact, if you think about it, we'll see that it is. And in this temple, the distinctions that make building a temple so different are going to be swept away. So difficult, I mean. So Revelation 2, 20. Uh, yes. Sorry, I didn't mean 27, I meant 2 to 7. I beg your pardon. It's Revelation 21, verses 2 to 7. There's a hyphen got missed out there, sorry. Revelation 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his People and God himself will be with them and be their God he will wipe every tear from their eyes there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away he who was seated on the throne said I am making everything new then he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true he said to me it is done I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end So we know from that that this is Jesus speaking. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this. I will be his God, and he will be my son. And later on, it goes on in this passage to tell us that there is no sun or moon, because there's no need for one, because. God himself is the light the dwelling of God is with men but did you pick up the bride reference we're going to come back to that later this is the bride of Christ the the holy city the new Jerusalem it's described as coming down from heaven and yet in some sense at least it it must be the church but whatever exact meaning of that is and maybe there's a bit of a mystery there um, The the main thought is clear. Now the dwelling is God, God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So what do we find in this passage? That all the distinctions, all the barriers, all the separations have all been declared void. There is no more separation this is the new Jerusalem the world is the city and the city is the temple and the temple is the holy place where you meet with God all the the barriers have been removed access is direct and everyone in that city can come directly into the presence of God there'll be no special priesthood we won't need lots of complicated courtyards I should say there'll be no priesthood but of course there would be a priesthood because the Bible says we are all priests, we'll all have access to God. No courtyards to make your way through, to go through into the uh, more holy place because everywhere is holy, it's all a holy place and the people will have access to God directly. And so that is the temple we're building it is an entirely new sort of temple a temple that doesn't have this separation between man and God so let's make sure we build carefully and well and Revelation warns us that no unholy thing can enter the temple enter the city he says the gates will always be open it's not going to be closed at night or for a siege or something the gates will always be open And yet, no unholy thing is going to get in. And so let's again remember Paul's warning, that if our building is slipshod, it's not going to pass Jesus' quality control. It won't make it into the final building, as Paul warns us don't quite know how that works, Paul reminds and says that the person will himself be saved but his, his work will be destroyed, I'm not sure how that works quite but uh, that's what Paul says but certainly if we want our work to endure, if we want our, to be able to say almost as it were that this is my bit of the temple, this is me and this is the bit I built then we need to make sure that it passes the quality control why is that? Well, because the reason for the separation is that the Lord is holy. And as there's words we find earlier in the book of Revelation. We find these words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is a holy temple for a holy God who was and is and is to come. So let's stop there. So,